Welcome to Episode 5 of the Drug Training Podcast from OnlineDrugTraining.com. This week, we'll talk about the drugs that are used in drug-facilitated sexual assault. The press will have you believe that only GHB and rohypnol is used in drug rapes, but you'd be surprised at what is actually used in real cases of drug-facilitated sexual assault. And we'll also announce the winner of this month's five-star review rating on iTunes. Welcome to the Drug Training Podcast with Keith Graves, a police officer who spent 28 years specializing in drug investigations and who regularly teaches law enforcement officers, private businesses, and concerned families on spotting and dealing with drug use. This podcast is the essential resource for both professionals and individuals who need practical help, advice, and insight. Now, here's your host, Keith Graves. Welcome back. I'm your host, Keith Graves, the primary instructor and owner of OnlineDrugTraining.com. To better understand what drug-facilitated sexual assault, or DFSA, and the drugs that would be involved in a sexual assault, it's best to define what a DFSA is. DFSA occurs when a suspect, male or female, uses an anesthesia-type drug with the victim's knowledge or without, which renders the victim physically helpless or incapacitated and they can't give consent. When she's in a state of helplessness, the suspect then sexually assaults her. DFSA has been happening for more than a century, but with the advent of the internet, there's never been as much information on drugs so widely available to anyone looking for it like there is right now. There are websites dedicated to letting potential suspects know how much of a specific drug to give a female, or in some cases a male, per kilogram of body weight. So they'll let you know, as an example, that you should use 2 grams of a specific drug for a person that weighs 80 kilos. Then you would just convert kilos into pounds if you're in the U.S. With this information at hand, the drug-facilitated rapist can give the exact amount of a drug without fear of overdosing the victim, but still keeping them unconscious while they commit one of the most heinous acts imaginable. In a 2006 study from the University of Illinois, researchers found that 62% of all rapes were drug-related. And in my experience, that's pretty accurate. That's what it looks like to me from the rape reports that I've been taking over the years. In that same study, researchers found that only 5% of the rapes use classic date rape drugs like rohypnol or GHB. But what drugs are used to commit these rapes? If you ask the press, it's rohypnol and GHB, which are both CNS depressants. A CNS depressant is a drug it's going to lower your vital signs. It's going to lower your pulse. It's going to lower your breaths. It'll make you very drowsy. And in some cases, it makes you forget about things. However, alcohol is the most popular drug to facilitate rape. If it's not alcohol, the suspect's going to use whatever drug that they have available to them at that particular moment. If the suspect has a prescription for Valium, then more than likely, he's going to use that prescribed Valium to help knock out the victim. So think about it. He's intimately familiar with that drug and has it readily available. If your suspect's addicted to opiate medications, he'll use his prescribed medication. If he's an abuser of heroin, expect him to use the heroin. However, what other drugs are going to be used? The drugs used to commit these rapes will more than likely come from the CNS depressant category of drugs or opiates. CNS depressant drugs are drugs that lower your body's vitals, it relaxes your muscles, and opiates, they do the same thing, but they also kill pain. The CNS depressant drugs used can include commonly prescribed drugs like Valium or Soma or Clonopin. 
common opiates that are going to be used would be like hydrocodone, which would be like your Vicodin, Norco, Lortab, or oxycodone, and we're all familiar with those working the street. I've seen heroin used in the past, so as an example, two heroin addicts got together to get high, but the suspect gave the victim more heroin than she was used to. The suspect committed the rape when the victim went on the nod. And heroin addicts that are on the nod, they look like they're asleep, and they can be easily taken advantage of. On rarer occasions, suspect might use dissociative anesthetics like ketamine or DXM or dextromethorphan. Drugs in this category have similar signs and symptoms like PCP. By giving a victim ketamine, the victim will have heavy sedation and can become unmoving and unable to give consent or fight off their attacker. Although GHB and rohypnol are not the most popular drugs to use in a DFSA, they're still used by suspects that have done research on drug-facilitated sexual assault. GHB is a clear, colorless, and odorless powder and has a slightly salty taste. Oftentimes, suspects are going to mix GHB with a fruity alcoholic drink to mask the taste. With as little as a water bottle capful, causing intoxication similar to a 0.20 BAC, it is quite effective for causing quick intoxication on the victim. The victim can have amnesia and may not remember the sexual assault at all. Rehypnol is also a CNS depressant, but it's not legally prescribed in the U.S. Often, suspects are going to go to Mexico to a pharmacia and buy rohypnol and bring it back across the border. Rohypnol is very powerful and comes in a pill form. The rapist is going to crush the pill and mix it with a drink and give it to the victim. And the victim could be sedated for up to 12 hours with no memory of what occurred. Victims may not always be given these drugs surreptitiously. Many times, victims get together with the suspect to party. The victim may think that they're taking drugs like ecstasy or MDMA voluntarily, but the suspect's actually giving them an opiate-type drug or a CNS depressant with the intention of raping them. After the victim takes what they think is ecstasy, they succumb to the effects of the actual drug given to them and the suspect commits the DFSA. Other times, the suspect and the victim are taking a drug together that the suspect knows would be good to facilitate a rape. Here, the suspect's taking advantage of the situation. It's important to note that even though the victim is voluntarily taking drugs and those drugs might be illegal, it still doesn't negate the illegality of the rape that occurs. It's important to know that the suspect is still a predator and is going to continue these actions unless he's stopped. Another aspect of drug facilitated rapes is that the suspect's use of street drugs. Oftentimes, the suspect's going to give the victim cocaine, methamphetamine, or ecstasy, or some other illegal drug so that the victim will test positive for that drug during the toxicological examination. The suspect's main intention is to damage the victim's credibility during the investigation to make him or her look like a partier that was doing illegal drugs when the rape was committed. The suspect may also give the victim a drug like cocaine to make the victim more lively when committing the rape. Cocaine's a short-acting drug. It lasts anywhere from 10 to 90 minutes when used, depending on the person's tolerance, as well as the method of ingestion. Usually, the victim's going to be unconscious, so the suspect's going to inject the cocaine into the victim. The suspect will use the same method as a cocaine addict would to shoot up the drug. This will make the victim come alive so that he's not assaulting a limp noodle. And at the same time, the suspect knows that the victim will test positive for cocaine, damaging her credibility. So the takeaway from this is that if the victim tells you she didn't take any drugs voluntarily, but tests positive for drugs not commonly used in a DFSA, 
she may very well be telling the truth. Drug-facilitated sexual assaults are complex investigations that take an experienced investigator to handle. It's important to understand current drug trends, and it's equally important to involve a drug expert in the investigation. Most importantly, we need to keep up with these drug trends so that we can bring justice for the victim. This week, we just released our latest course, Drug Facilitated Sexual Assault Investigation and Prevention. If you go to the show notes for a link to this course, you can get more information on the topic. In the new online course, we'll cover much more than what we cover in this episode, and we'll give you the tools that you need to thoroughly investigate a DFSA. It's a great course for investigators, patrol officers, DREs, victim advocates, and SART nurses. All right, so this is the time that we take time out to talk about a significant news story that came out during the week. This week, I'm picking one that uh, hits home to all of us. It's a West Virginia sheriff that was accused of meth theft and pled guilty to a felony and resigned. In the article, it states that a newly elected West Virginia sheriff admitted he was a meth addict and was charged with stealing the drug from a police locker and pleaded guilty to a felony and resigned from his office. Bo Williams is the sheriff, and he entered the plea to a charge of entering without breaking Wednesday in Roan County Circuit Court. County Prosecutor Josh Downey said Williams was accused of taking meth from the storage area when he was a Spencer police officer last fall. He resigned in December, a month after being elected sheriff, and he took office this month. According to a criminal complaint, meth was found in Williams' desk and police vehicle. And the complaint said several evidence bags found with Williams contained case numbers corresponding to the missing evidence. Downey said Williams told him Spencer Police Chief Greg Nichols and a state police sergeant last November that he had been addicted to meth for more than a year. Downey said Williams admitted removing the meth from police case files and consuming it. Williams faces up to 10 years in prison when he's sentenced on March 28th. This is uncommon. But it does happen. I'm going to be doing a podcast later on police officer addiction. I'm actually doing a study right now on officers that are addicted to drugs. And what I found doing that study, I've interviewed and polled over 700 police officers. And what I found, we only have a 5% drug use rate in law enforcement. Now, to me, 5% is still unacceptable. But it's far below the national average for the U.S. population. But cops using drugs does happen. This incident with meth, this is the rarest of all types of drug use by police officers. In my study, I found that a majority of the cops taking drugs were cops that were injured on duty, prescribed opiate medications, and then become addicted to painkillers as they try to continue doing their job. In my study, I found that only a handful of people were doing drugs like meth or cocaine. It was very, very rare. But it does happen. So how do you avoid it? You pay attention to your coworkers. I have seen other coworkers become addicted before, and it's something that isn't unnoticed. Another way of doing it is to have the two-person booking system, just like you would if you're booking cash. Here, when you book drugs into the evidence room, you have two people that book the drugs into property so that you can protect everybody involved. And as far as the property room, you make sure that there's two people that are back there that are processing the evidence so they can both do checks and balances along the way. So as you all know, I decided that uh, we were going to play a game and we'd give a free class if you went on to iTunes 
and put up a five-star review. So I got a couple of five-star reviews. Thanks for your help. I appreciate it. I'd like to give this free class to ald637. He says, I'm a game warden who doesn't get much training on drug recognition patterns and trends, but there's a huge problem in my community with meth and heroin is slowly becoming more common. I listen to these on the road and find them to be highly informative. I appreciate the information. I'd love to hear a podcast on cues to look for in order to help develop probable cause, which may not be so obvious to the average Joe on patrol. So what we're going to do is we are going to do a podcast and we're going to talk about signs and symptoms and what to look for. So that is coming up in an upcoming podcast. Al D637, if you email me at podcast at online drug training.com, we'll get you that free course that you can take online. So if you can, if you could subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, and once a month we'll pick somebody for a free course that puts up a five-star review. You can find more information on subjects like this on our online course, Drug Facilitated Sexual Assault. You can find a link to that class in our show notes. Also, visit our online blog, The Briefing Room, where we have more information on drugs and drug intelligence. And if you have any questions or comments, feel free to contact me at podcasts at onlinedrugtraining.com. That's it for now. I'll see you next week. Stay safe. Thanks for listening to the Drug Training Podcast with Keith Graves. We'd love to hear your comments and respond to your questions in future episodes. Visit our accompanying website at www.onlinedrugtraining.com for more information, advice, training, and to get in touch. And join us again on the next edition of the Drug Training Podcast.